It's just such a joy to be together and sing hymns of praise to God, lift up our voices, and encourage one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. To hear God's word read and an important text from the Old Testament and to pray to God as we have tonight. It's a great privilege to be together, isn't it, as God's people. Thank you for, for being here. If you're visiting, we're happy that you can join us to honor the God of heaven. We've been studying, as most all of us know, uh, in the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings in most all of our classes. Uh, I preached something a little bit related to that this morning. I'm going to preach something related to it tonight. Uh, there's just so much in this section that we're studying in our Bible classes right now that's of great profit and foundational, really, for all of our faith. Uh, and I think it does us good, once in a while at least, if we can connect a sermon to what we're doing in the Bible classes. It's very beneficial to me, and I hope it is to you as well. This past week, on Wednesday, some of you I know know, may, maybe some of you don't know, it was International Women's Day. Of course, nowadays you have a, a day for everything and everybody, uh, but it's great. We have, we have a Mother's Day. I think there's a, a, a Mom's Day uh, internationally, a Dad's Day, a Son's Day, Second Cousin's Day. I don't know. There's all kinds of days. But there, it was International Women's Day this last Wednesday. And, and if, you, if you went to, if you get online and you search anything on Google, you know, on some special days, they'll have a drawing, a doodle about whatever the special day is. And they had International Women's Day with a bunch of women on this doodle, you know, that's at the top of the page. And, and once in a while, just out of curiosity, I, I click on that to see, you know, what's going on as far as International Women's Day goes, I guess, is what I wanted to know. So I clicked and and uh, it took me to in information about the day. And it took me to a, a Wikipedia entry, actually. And it said this, International Women's Day is a global holiday celebrated annually on March 8th as a focal point in the women's rights movement, bringing attention to issues such as gender equality, reproductive rights, and violence and abuse against women. So... That was, frankly, about what I expected it would be. Uh, it's an attempt by our world uh, to honor women on their terms. I don't know how else to say that. And part of it has good in it. Uh, there's actually a lot of good in it. And then some of it is kind of questionable. The current state of the international women's movement has really wandered far afield from some of its original purposes and intention from, say, 150 years ago, when it really got going in the Western world. And, and originally, the concept of it was to improve working conditions for women during the Industrial Revolution, where they especially had hard times if they had to go to work in the factories and all of that sort of thing. So that was one of the main things. And also in our country, uh, when it really got going, uh, to allow women to speak out against slavery in the uh, abolitionist movement in the 1800s, to give them a voice in doing that. So that was those were two things that really uh, were the impetus for that international women's movement. I found that to be interesting. Well, as I said, we're currently studying through Exodus and the wilderness wanderings in our Bible classes. And in in this narrative that we're looking at now, there are not just women of faith, but I'll just say this, there are international women of faith 
that we're going to see. <laughs> and and I w- I'd like to look at six women of faith that we'll come across, a couple of them we have already, in this quarter of study. And I know the teachers, as you go through, you'll be pointing these uh, women of faith out and what they did and talking about their accomplishments and all of that. But I, I really wanted to highlight it, not so much because of what day it was last Wednesday, but because I really believe it's important to understand the vital contributions that women have made and are making to the story of redemption. Uh, I think sometimes as a whole, both men and women, we don't appreciate the women nearly as much as we should. And God would want us to honor uh, women of faith. He does. Implicit throughout the entire Bible story, you have the fact that it is often women of faith who are holding it all together, who are the very groundwork for what happens in a positive way. And and those concepts, they, they certainly need to be imbued in our young people. But we need to be sure that we understand the value that God has placed on women of faith. What we're going to see are examples of women of faith doing important things that advance the cause of righteousness and help their nation and their families to do right. And so for a 40-year period, not just one day, but 14,600 days, for a 40-year period, women of faith were critical and crucial to what happened to God's people during the time of the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. So let's look at six instances. And the first really includes two women. So I guess that would make seven women, and actually more than that, because we're going to have another little group here in a little while. But the Hebrew midwives. If you go to Exodus chapter 1 and verse 15, uh, the king of Egypt uh, spoke to the Hebrew midwives. He was... uh, not liking how Israel was growing strong and uh, the Egyptians were beginning to be afraid that, you know, the Israelites would, would rise up and, and revolt and shake off the, the bondage and maybe even uh, take over Egypt. Who knows? So Pharaoh was trying to stop all of that from happening. And so he approached the Hebrew midwives to whom the name of one was Shipra and the name of the other was Pua. So here are two women uh, probably good answers to Bible trivia questions. You know, <laughs> what, what were their names? Not largely known, obviously. And here they are mentioned in Scripture. But as you read the account and see what happened, you realize if these women hadn't done what they did, Exodus would be a whole different story. It just would. God would have had to do something else. He would have. But it wouldn't have gone the track that it did. And so what they did, when Pharaoh comes and he talks to them, he says, when you do the duties of the midwives for the Hebrew women, see and, and see them on the birth stools. If it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. Their faith and their fear of God motivated the midwives 
to preserve life instead of destroy it. Had they not done this, what if Moses had been killed? He would have been, been one of the ones, right? We understand God's power is working in all of this, but these women made a choice. They made a choice because they feared God. They made a choice because they had faith in God. They made a choice because they wanted to do the right thing and would not work against the people of God. It's really a marvelous story. And so it says in verse 20 that God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very mighty. God intended and wanted for Israel to come out of Egypt as His holy nation and to be a fully-fledged people. As I'm teaching this on, on Wednesday nights and we're teaching with Cameron this, this period, one of the things I've, I've said about this is you know, Israel in Egypt is Israel in incubation. But God wants Israel to come out as a fully formed nation. And certainly, a big part of that happening was what these midwives did. What they enabled by their faith. Because, because of this, Israel continued to multiply. It's a blessing. A great blessing. I want to say to you in connection with this that the sin of willfully and selfishly killing innocent children is abhorrent to God. This becomes abundantly clear in the later history of Israel. In 2 Kings chapter 24, as the writer of 2 Kings is describing why it is that God wound up pretty much wiping out Israel and Judah, causing both of them to be taken into captivity. And here he's talking about uh, Judah, the northern kingdom, being destroyed by the Babylonians. He said, surely at the commandment of the Lord, this came upon Judah, 2 Kings 24 and verse 3, to remove them from his side because of the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also because of the innocent blood that he had shed. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, which the Lord would not pardon. More specifically, of course, what Manasseh had done is he caused his children and the children of the land to be sacrificed in fire to idol gods. That's specifically talked about numerous times in that section of the biblical narrative. But you can look at Psalms 106, which reviews this history. And it says in Psalm 106 and verse 36, about the people of God of that day, that they served idols and they became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they were defiled by their own works, and played the harlot by their own deeds. Therefore the wrath of the Lord was kindled against His people. So He abhorred His own inheritance. In Proverbs chapter 6 and verse 17, we learn that God hates the hands that shed innocent blood. Why am I saying all of this to you? The Hebrew midwives would not shed innocent blood. They stood up in faith against the command of the king. Since Roe versus Wade was first implemented in our country decades ago, there have been faithful women of God in this land who have stood tooth and toenail against that bad piece of uh, jurisprudence from our Supreme Court. 
And without those women of God who took the side of righteousness, refused to kill their babies, and encouraged other women not to kill their babies, I am sure that we would still be under Roe v. Wade today or something worse. And so it is, even in our land and in our time, great women of faith have changed the course of our nation and can change the course of our nation. I am sure that it had only been men who had stood up and said, no, we're not going to do abortions in this land. It would never have flown. Because godly women did. It made a difference. These ladies, these women, these women of faith, what a great thing they did for God's people in that day. In Exodus chapter 2, Moses is born. His mother's name is Jochebed. We learn his parents' names back over in Exodus 6, a little bit later on. But Amram and Jochebed are the parents of Moses. And it says in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 2 that this woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a beautiful child, she hid him three months. Well, why did she do that? Well, because, again, Pharaoh had decided he's going to kill all the male children, the newborn children in Egypt that were born to the Hebrews because he was trying to wipe out the Hebrews or at least uh, keep them oppressed. And so here, Moses' mother, Jochebed, hides Moses for three months. But then she couldn't hide him anymore. The text tells us that um, she made an ark for him, covered it with pitch, put it in the reeds by the river. Miriam, Moses' sister, sits, stands there and watches what's going to happen. And we know the story. Pharaoh's daughter comes down and the baby's crying and she has compassion on the baby and wants to take care of the baby. And all of that, by the providence of God, of course, occurs. And it winds up by also the providence of God that Moses' own mother is given him to nurse until uh, such a time as he can be given back to Pharaoh's daughter. We know that story, I think all of us, even down to the little children, pretty well. But there are a couple of things I want us to think about. First of all, this was done by Jochebed, by faith, and by strong faith, frankly. Every bit of this, in hiding her baby, in putting the baby in the ark in the bulrushes by the river, and in later giving the baby to Pharaoh's daughter. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 23, the New Testament mentions this, of course, when it says that by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents. Please notice, it's not Moses' faith that's under consideration there. It's the faith of the parents, particularly. And particularly, if you go back to the story, it's the mother's faith. He was hidden three months by his parents because they saw that he, that he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. Once his mother was taking care of him and nursing him, of course he grew. And if you go back to the text in Exodus, Exodus chapter 2 and verse 10, it will say that the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. I don't know if you've ever thought 
about what kind of faith that took. I'm not sure had I saved my baby as an infant and then was able to get him back, uh, I might just have, you know, got a boat and floated on down the Nile and gone someplace else with my baby. But here she does what providence leads her to do. She knows that God has protected her child. She trusts God to protect her child. And she gives Moses to Pharaoh's daughter. And again, had she not done all of that by faith, every bit of that all along, what a difference in the history of Israel would have made. Had Moses not been saved, had he not been brought up by his own mother when he was young, no doubt getting some good Hebrew training in that time, and had he not then been turned over to Pharaoh's daughter to become a prince in Egypt, what a different story the story would be. But here is foundationally a woman who have, with courage and conviction and trust in the providence of God does what needs to be done. And what a difference it made. And then we come to Moses' later life and to his wife, whose name is Zipporah. When we come to Exodus chapter 2, uh, the latter part of the chapter in verses 15 through 22, we find Moses uh, going to the area of Sinai, running across the Midianites there. Uh, priest of Midian had seven daughters. Uh, Moses helps them out on an occasion. And uh, one of those daughters was Zipporah, whom then he marries. And just a little bit later on, as the story continues in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 4, we find that Moses was to go then and tell Pharaoh to let God's people go. In Exodus chapter 4 and verse 22, God tells Moses, You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Now this is before you know Moses ever really heads to Egypt. This is what God is telling him. You go tell Pharaoh, Israel's my firstborn. I'm going to care for my firstborn. You need to let my firstborn go so he can serve me. Just an aside here. Israel was God's firstborn. Israel was a special nation to God. God had made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. And in part of that covenant, God had said that you are going to be uh, my special people. Your descendants will be special to me. And as a seal or a sign of the covenant between me and you and your children, the males are going to be circumcised. The way that's put in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 9, this shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. That's verse 11, rather. And then you find out in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 14, as God concludes his discussion with Abraham about this important covenant he's making with him, a covenant to bless his descendants, to make them his holy nation, his special people, you're going to keep this sign of the covenant 
between us, which is circumcision. And then he says in verse 14, the uncircumcised male child, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So you see from the get-go what an important thing circumcision was as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. This covenant to bless Abraham's descendants. This is the covenant that God is now fulfilling, in part, when he goes to Moses and tells Moses to go to Pharaoh, say, let my people go. He's right in the middle of fulfilling that. And he's telling Moses to tell Pharaoh, Israel's my firstborn. And then Moses is going along to start to go do that. And Moses' son is not circumcised. Anybody see a problem with that? God did. God did. And so as the text rolls along, in Exodus chapter 4 and verse 24, it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you're a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. And she said, You're a husband of blood because of the circumcision. That, uh, I can only say, was some woman. (laughs) I don't know what else to say about that. She saw She knew what needed to be done. Even when, I don't know if it slipped Moses' mind, I don't know if he just didn't think it was all that important, I don't know what the deal was, why his son wasn't circumcised, but he wasn't. God was extraordinarily displeased with that. And Zipporah made it right. Again, what a great act of faith. What a realization on the part of a woman. Moses, we got to do God's will here. (laughs) Here's the problem. This is what God expects. She knew it. Moses should have, I would think surely did. Yet it had not been accomplished. And it was up to his good wife to do what needed to be done. Zipporah's action saves Moses' life. And it also honors God's intention regarding circumcision. Let's think about Miriam. And a lot could be said about Miriam. Some of it not great, but a lot of it very good. I'm just going to notice a couple of things about Miriam with you. Moses' sister, his older sister. Exodus 15 and verse 20. After Israel has made it through the Red Sea, uh, the Egyptians have, have been wiped out in the, in the uh, enclosing of the Red Sea. And then there's this time of rejoicing and victory of all the children of Israel. In Exodus 15 and verse 20, Miriam the prophetess, notice she's called a prophetess. I don't know if we, are, uh, if we keep her in our list of prophetesses of the Old Testament, but she is a prophetess, which means that God would have spoken at times by inspiration through her. Now, get your mind around that a little bit. (laughs) We don't have a lot of record of that. But if she's a prophetess, God's speaking by inspiration through her. To whom, you might ask? And this might answer why we don't have much record of it. 
Probably mainly to the women. But here we go. The text says in Exodus 15, Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, this is after they've won this great victory. God has led them in this great victory, I should say. Defeat of the Egyptian army. She took the timbrel in her hand and all the women went out after her with timbrels in and, and with dances. And Miriam answered, Sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider He has thrown into the sea. That passage and that thought is echoed even in the Psalms with great, with great joy as God has given His people victory over the mighty Egyptians. And it was Miriam who led the women in that. You might say, well, that's not that big a thing when it was a big thing. It was a big thing for the whole nation. All the women going out and praising God in this way on the shores of the Red Sea at the very site of this tremendous victory. There's one other uh, passage I'd like to point out to you. And again, I'm, I'm not going to conjecture a lot about everything that Miriam did, but I think almost surely that she did way more than we're told helping lead the people out of bondage. And I say to you that yes, she did help lead the people out of bondage. She was a leader of the women. You see it here. But I want to point out a passage that was written 700 years or so after what we just read in Exodus. It's in Micah chapter 6 and verse 4, where God says, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. And I sent before you Moses... Aaron and Miriam. Those are the ones that God chose to lead His people out of bondage. Would it have happened without Miriam? Not the way that it did, it wouldn't have. So again, a great woman of faith. Then we come to the daughters of Zelophehad. Not particularly a really well-known story in the Old Testament, but one I wanted to include because I think they are heroic women of faith in a lot of ways. They had faith to speak what was right in the face of injustice and, frankly, potential oppression. So Zelophehad had, had daughters. He was one of the Israelites in the wanderings. He had daughters, but he had no sons. Uh, in Numbers chapter 26, we're introduced to him and his daughters. And we come to uh, then chapter 27, uh, verse 1, the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of uh, Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Maker, the son of Manasseh, the families of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, these were the names of his daughters. Malah, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Terzah. And they stood before they stood before Moses and Eleazar the priest, and before the leaders and all the congregation by the doorway of the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not in the company of those who gathered together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but he died on his own, in his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be removed from among his family because he had no sons? Give us a possession among our father's brothers. So here's, if you're not following that, you're not familiar with the story, I expect almost all of you are. But basically what they're saying is, look, we're a bunch of women. Our father has died in the wilderness. We don't have really any male relatives. But we don't want to be dispossessed. Shouldn't we get, as Israelites, a portion of the promised land? 
And I, I think Moses was not too sure about that. <laughs> so he takes it to the Lord. And the Lord is sure about it. And here's, here's what he says. He brought it to the Lord in verse 5. Verse 6, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, The daughters of Zelophehad speak what is right. You shall surely give them a possession of inheritance among their fathers, brothers, and cause the inheritance of their father to pass to them. May I just say that we cannot possibly appreciate what a huge step forward in justice this was in ancient times. In our land, it's commonplace, obviously, for women to possess property. In ancient times, in the days of the Israelites, very few women would possess any property. Most of them were property. That's how the ancient world typically thought about women. And so here you have God saying, these women are right. You cannot dispossess them. They must not lose their inheritance just because they're women. They get a portion in the promised land. Why did that happen? It happened because a few sisters decided to get together and speak up for justice. They weren't out of the way. They went to the authorities and they just said, hey, this isn't right. We're asking for what's right. We're asking for justice. The Lord wants men and women, all of us, to speak up for justice. Not to look at an injustice and just let it go by and just let it happen. As I've already indicated, sort of, I think you all agree that in this world, there's plenty of injustice, but there'd be a lot more of it if at one time or another, women hadn't spoken out against it. And that's what you see right here. In Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 17, God tells us to learn to do good, to seek justice, to rebuke the oppressor, to defend the fatherless, to plead for the widow. These are causes that we're to take on. In Jeremiah 5 and verse 28, God's people of that day are condemned. They'd grown fat. They are asleep. They surpass the deeds of, of the wicked. They do not plead the cause, the cause of the fatherless. Yet they prosper. And the right of the needy they do not defend. Christians now and then, uh, past and future I should say, all of us should be standing up for what is right in this world. And not allowing injustice to go unchallenged. It may be that all we get for pointing out an injustice is a slap in the face or whatever. It may be that we don't get anywhere. But we need to speak against it. We, we can be kind, but we need to be forthright and plain about what's right and what's wrong in this world. The last one I'd like to look at the, of the women of faith this evening is, of course, well known to most all of us, even the little children. That's the story of Rahab. Rahab, Rahab's sins is rather Joshua sends two spies to spy out Jericho as they're about to conquer the land. And they wind up going to Jericho, winding up at Rahab's house. She hides them uh, 
from the king's men who are seeking them, sends out the king's men another way, and then she comes and speaks to um, the spies that have come in, and she makes an agreement with them concerning hiding them, but also them protecting her. And it's a bit of a fascinating conversation. Uh, Joshua chapter 2, starting in verse 9. She said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that and all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you, for the Lord your God, He is God in heaven, above and on earth beneath. Here's what we find out about Rahab. Yes, she was a harlot. Yes, she was a Canaanite. Yes, she was among those who ought to have been destroyed uh, with all of the other Canaanites. But yes, she was a believer in the God of heaven. And she was a believer in the God of heaven because of evidence that God had shown in time and history. God had opened the waters of the Red Sea. God had destroyed Sihon and Og. This, the, the, destroy, the destruction of those kings on the other side of the, uh, of the river was evidence for all people around. And it's mentioned uh, later on multiple times in the history of Israel. This great feat that God accomplished in having His people destroy the kingdoms of Sihon and Og. And, and so Rahab's looking at all of that and she says, you're, you're God's God of heaven. So here's what I know. I know He can protect me. And I'm just asking, if I protect you, will you protect me? And they make a deal, right? And the spies say, okay. Our lives for your life. And if you'll uh, hang this scarlet thread out your window, which was on the wall of Jericho, when we come back, we'll spare you and your family as long as they're in this place. And that was the covenant they made. And that's what happened. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 31, the writer says that by faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe. The reason was that she believed. She accepted the evidence and believed in the God of heaven. Ultimately, she is saved. She's saved with Israel. As the writer in Joshua chapter 6 and verse 25 says at the destruction of Jericho, Joshua spared Rahab the harlot, her father's household, and all that she had. So she dwells in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent out to spy out Jericho. What difference would it have made? God was going to make sure His people took Canaan no matter what. If the spies had gotten caught, it would have happened some other way, but it would happen. But it wouldn't have happened that way. Rahab makes sure that the spies don't get caught. Rahab saves her whole family as a result of trusting in the God who she knew was there and knew was powerful. What a great lesson that is for us. Thank you for your good attention tonight and stories that some of which we knew well and maybe others not so much. But in each case, 
I hope you see the point of this. And may I just conclude with a few words along this line that I hope will be helpful. The Bible story is replete, just full of examples of women of faith whose choices had a tremendous impact on God's people. Not just the few that we've talked about tonight in this brief section of Scripture, but many, many, many more. I noticed that Wayne Partain sent out some lessons on women that have been shared to our our website that I'm sure are fantastic. Women of the Bible. Uh, Whole books have been written on this topic. But it's a valuable thing to consider. When you think about Sarah and Deborah and Ruth, people like Hannah and Esther and Mary and Elizabeth and Mary Magdalene and Martha and her sister Mary and Dorcas and Lydia and how the entire biblical narrative would not be what it is without their faith. That God's people would not have gone forward in the way that they did without the faith of those women. Their lives were vital elements in the story of redemption. And there are sisters in Christ that are sitting in this room right now whose lives are vital elements in the story of redemption. Because there are people sitting in this room right now who would not be saved if it were not for those women who are sitting among us. The two lessons that I preach today both come as a result of conversations that I had with sisters in Christ in this congregation. It is often the case, you would be surprised how many times probably, that Steve's sermons come as a result of conversations that I have with our godly sisters in Christ in this church. Whose depth of understanding and of faith, whose examples in word and in deed, and whose love for the Lord and love for souls is positively inspirational. Let us thank God for that. There might be one here tonight, maybe somebody who's been influenced by a godly woman who's ready to obey the gospel, Or maybe someone who has looked at their own life and seen that maybe I'm not that person of faith that I ought to be. But I can be. Like these women of faith that we saw tonight. You need to make your life right. We'd ask you to come while we stand and while we sing.